If you had some advice to give to an entrepreneur looking to get into the supply chain space, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, the supply chain space, uh, it's a pretty technical area. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity for data. There's a, a need for a lot more data. And so a bunch of us are rushing around, sometimes competing with one another, trying to create platforms that will give uh, um, manufacturers, miners, uh, food processors, the data they need. You know, if I import from China, what are the real costs of doing that? What are the, not only the labor costs, the environmental costs, the uh, social exclusion costs uh, versus closer to home, near shoring closer to home, those kinds of things. I think we're all trying to figure out how to get that data out there in a meaningful way. And so there's an opportunity there, I think. Uh, And, um, you know, uh, just the logistics are going to be a lot more complicated. It used to be just in time delivery from anywhere in the world. Now uh, you've got to have redundancy and resiliency in your supply chain. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to run into major disruption, which could, you know, destroy your business. So all of these things are going to need some more people. Uh, to uh, to sort of spend time and energy uh, getting that going. Uh, and uh, so there, I think there's some going to be some opportunities there for sure. Today, I'm joined by the Honorable Tony Clement, a former minister in the federal Stephen Harper government and the Mike Harris and Ernie Eves governments in the province of Ontario. During his time in the House of Commons, Mr. Clement served as Minister of Health Minister of Industry, President of the Treasury Board, and Minister Responsible for Federal Economic Development Initiative for Northern Ontario. Over his career, Tony has been involved with multiple startups and is currently co-chair of Reshoring Canada, chairperson of Magnify, and host of Boom and Bust on the news forum. But before we start, just a reminder that the content on this podcast should not be taken as investment advice. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, sir. How are you? Really good. Yeah, really good. It's a rainy day, but uh, spirits are spirits are still okay. Um, you know, I was, I was particularly excited about this podcast because it's so rare to have somebody who both has experience in politics and entrepreneurship. So I'd, I'd love to start the podcast by, um, you know, asking you what kind of came first between politics and uh, entrepreneurship and how did you get into it? Yeah, they, they happened kind of simultaneously i i was attracted to politics at a young age and began volunteering for election uh, work and uh, stuff going on inside uh, my political party uh, at a young age even in high school even i was active and then in university i was even more active and then once mm-hmm. i got into the working world even more active and became president of the ontario pc party as a volunteer and uh, that was well before I ever got elected to anything. And uh, at the same time, um, I was pursuing, uh, once I finished my undergrad, I, I went into law school and was pursuing a law degree. And then once you get your law degree, then you article for a law firm, which I did do and uh, started work. And uh, I really felt the, the call to be an entrepreneur. I, I was dealing with a lot of entrepreneurs in my legal practice Uh, And I kind of was of the view that, you know what, I'd rather be the entrepreneur rather than being the lawyer advising the entrepreneur. 
Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I know there's higher risk and, you know, there's a, I had no fear of failure. I mean, I think that's a lot. You have to decide who you are. And if you're not a risk taker, don't, then don't do, you know, there, there's yeah. plenty of things you can be, including being a lawyer without the, the, the attendant risk, but I was a kind of a risk taker. And, you know, when you're in active in politics, that's a risky profession too. Absolutely. So there's, there, the, the two are not dissimilar that way. So, um, while I was doing my volunteer party political work, I was also, uh, thinking of ways to get into being an entrepreneur. And then, uh, well before you were born, uh, Tyler, <laughs> uh, the, the Berlin, the Berlin wall came tumbling down in 1989. And, uh, all of a sudden there was all this interest in these, uh, failed socialist economies and could they be rebooted, uh, with some entrepreneurial spirit. And so I ended up uh, in the former Soviet Union. Uh, I ended up in Moscow, St. Petersburg. Then I ended up in, uh, in Bucharest uh, and Warsaw and Prague, uh, wow. pursuing these entrepreneurial activities from about 1990 to 1992. And, uh, you know, that was kind of, that whetted my appetite for being involved in really interesting entrepreneurial work. And I helped privatize a, a bank in, in the Czech Republic, and I, I was involved in some uh, some construction of hotels in St. Petersburg and did, did a bunch of stuff like that. And uh, then uh, the politics start, sort of swung into action, and then I started a career uh, as a senior political staffer for Mike Harris, who was a leader of the, the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. He eventually became premier of Ontario in 1995. I ran in that election uh, and That's was right. successful and became a member of provincial parliament and then eventually a cabinet minister. And so I had that life. I had a political life. And then we got turfed out of office, as does happen. As I said, you know, politics is risky business. So we got turfed out in 2003. And then I went back to being an entrepreneur again. And this right. time I had an Indo-Canadian partner. And we did uh, work uh, in the tech sector, and I had offices in New Delhi and Bangalore and places like that, as well as in Toronto. Uh, and I really enjoyed being an entrepreneur again. And then I got elected to parliament. So then I put the entrepreneurialism yeah. aside, became a <laughs> cabinet minister in the Harper government, did all that. And then I exited parliament in 2019. And I guess I could have been a lawyer. Uh, but I really had no interest in being a lawyer. So I kind of made the decision in 2019 that I was going to, you know, really pursue the entrepreneurial life. And that's what I'm doing. I, I'm an investor and uh, an advisor to six startup companies in the tech and healthcare spaces. And uh, that's a big chunk of what I do and uh, really enjoying it. Wow. And and so what what did you take away? So you've got a really interesting insight on being inside the political atmosphere and being inside the entrepreneur's mind, because there's often, okay, uh, how do the entrepreneurs work with the government to achieve uh, innovation and, and um, mm -hmm. you know, efficiency? So where do you think that that stands today in Canada? And, and where do you think that should maybe go if you were to have any kind of, you know, uh, insight? It's, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, understanding that has to be brought to bear because, uh, uh, let's face it, uh, government uh, doesn't necessarily automatically understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur. 
And I, when I was uh, president of the treasury board, uh, I had to deal with entrepreneurs because I was in charge of the open data movement, uh, getting uh, government data out to the public. And so I all of a sudden was, was, uh, was uh, talking to and engaging with uh, startup entrepreneurs and uh, people who wanted to help startup entre- entrepreneurs take government data and create new applications and create new uh, uh, new industries, basically. And in fact, one of my senior staffers loved it so much. Uh, you know, he, I t- he'd tag along, and we'd we'd meet with all these uh, venture capitalists and uh, new startup uh, app developer developers using government data. And he thought, you know, this is pretty cool. So he quit. Uh, and a couple of years later, he started up his own company called Think Data, uh, which, uh, you know, d- deals with open data and then packages it for clientele uh, so that they can understand their industry and, uh, and value add. So, yeah, I mean, I felt like I was the helping to create this new industry of open data which is, uh, you know, can be a big part of an, an economy. So, yes, uh, I, that, but that was kind of the exception, you know, what yeah. I was doing. Like I, I, I convinced the government uh, to partner with the private sector to create a hackathon uh, and became hmm. the biggest hackathon in, in Canadian history where we offered prizes to people who used government data to create new apps. And these are all 22-year-old kids, right? Doing That's this cool. and they would do it. 48 or 72 hour period, they'd be slumming it in some office somewhere, you know, creating the code for these apps. And uh, give me some examples uh, of these apps. Well, one of them had, uh, you know, uh, one of the winners um, was for newcomers to the country, uh, uh, a kind of almost like a Google Earth type app where if they if they could sort of plug in where they were living, they could find out where the schools were and where the uh, government services were and it was all on one one app right mm. uh and another one uh would use the uh the the geo uh tools uh for our national parks and you could plug that you could use the app to find how to get to that park and what the amenities were at that park so we would encourage people to use our national parks those are just a couple of examples using uh, geospatial data and and other open data that was available so, uh, yeah, so that was exciting. Again, that was an exception uh, to the rule, which is, you know, it's kind of hard to get those two cultures to mesh all the time. But I would say this. I mean, one of the things I was always trying to pursue uh, was I knew how younger public servants would behave like they They'd start off in the morning at the coffee shop before they got to the office. So they'd be at Starbucks or wherever, and they'd be on their personal laptop or on their personal phone and engaging, engaging and doing stuff and posting and whatever else and learning and and so on. Then they get to the office, they'd shut all those things down and they'd be at their government issued computer with all the (laughs) firewalls. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, we can't we how are we going to recruit? quality young people to be in the public service if they mm. if, if this is their world right so uh, it did help me understand uh, some of the uh, some of the things we had to break down a little bit if we were going to have a modern public service that was attuned to what was going on out there so Absolutely. you know people kind of love that because you know at least I got where we had to go 
Yeah, no, it's it's amazing being able to speak those two languages and, and kind of find the intersections between the two. And so uh, with your with your experience on the Treasury Board as well, how do you, you know, you've really seen, you've seen behind the scenes. What do you, how do you assess the current economy? Obviously, inflation's really uh, top of a lot of people's minds right now. Um, what do you think? Yeah, look, inflation, cost of living, cost of housing, uh, it's all top of mind. And uh, I think it's going to be driving politics for the next little while. I don't think it's going to go any, away anytime soon as, in terms of challenges. And uh, uh, part of it is, uh, you know, government um, designed, uh, yeah. if I can put it that way, when, when, when the Bank of Canada is printing $400 billion of money to buy Canadian bonds because the government of Canada has a huge, massive deficit, then that's inflationary. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's, it sucks money out of the productive part of the economy uh, when you when you have these massive deficits. And, you know, we went through COVID. I understand why we had deficit spending during COVID, but you got to get out of that thinking uh, as quickly as possible. And I don't think this government is going to do that. So we're going to have some problems in this country. We don't have a reserve currency. The United States has a reserve currency. So when they print more dollars, everybody wants those dollars. Yes. Not everybody wants the Canadian dollars, right? And so uh, I think we are at great risk, uh, not only because of inflation, but because uh, uh, interest rates are going to spike up uh, and just to keep people attracted to can the Canadian dollar, as well as to try to dampen down inflation. That's going to have an impact on mortgages and other, other aspects of affordability and cost of living. So, yeah, I, I think we're in a problematic area. The last federal budget, which was just a few weeks ago, had a, I think it was page 122 or somewhere in there. They had a chart from the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, which is a kind of a club of rich countries. There's 21 countries, you know, mm -hmm. Canada, USA, Mexico, you know, you could, you could probably name most of them. Uh, and they had a, they had a forecast of a GDP growth for the next 20 years. Canada was 21st out of 21 countries. And that was actually, they had actually reprinted that in the Canadian budget. Wow. And uh, it's, it's a big problem. Like we're, we're not competitive. Uh, we're not going to have the growth rates uh, that are going to help our citizens be wealthy uh, and for their kids to be wealthy. Uh, and uh, I don't, you know, if you want to pay for the environment uh, and if you want to pay for social services, you need wealth. Uh, yes. It doesn't come free. Uh, and so I think we're, we're in a, a very challenging period right now, to be honest with you. So, you know, and we're talking about Canada. It's, it's a capable, competent com country with, with uh, so many resources. So why, why are we 21st on that list? Well, I mean, there's a number of reasons, uh, uh, you know, and I think this is being debated nationally. It's also being debated within my party, the Conservative Party, because we've got leadership candidates who are starting to talk about these issues. And, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, we're uh, we're spending a lot of government money, which is printed by the Bank of Canada, and uh, it isn't going into the productive parts of our economy. Uh, and uh, yeah, we've got to help people who need help. I'm not saying otherwise, uh, but uh, there there has to be some sort of balance, and there has to be a, a strategy for uh, wealth creation and growth. Taxes are, are very high in this country. Uh, and uh, so we're, we're driving out the productive parts of our economy. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, one of the things I'm doing now, I'm co-chairing Reshoring Canada, which I, is an organization I created about a year ago. It's, it's all about 
having more resilient uh, supply chains in this country. Okay. Uh, and obviously the supply chain crisis is top of mind. When, when I created the organization, it was somewhat less so, although uh, COVID was creating an understanding that you, you live or die by your supply chain. But uh, the point being, uh, you know, uh, if, if Canada is not producing uh, rare earth metals or, uh, you know, the, uh, the carbon energy uh, that is still necessary while we transition. And those metals, by the way, help us help the world create electric vehicle batteries, uh, you know, uh, and other and solar panels and whatnot. Uh, if we're not part of that supply chain, we're, uh, we're going to be in huge trouble for the future as well. And China kind of operates 85% of the critical mineral supply chain right now. And this is a big yeah. problem that has been identified by the U.S. government, by the Biden administration, as well as by uh, the Trudeau government. But we, we, we've, we've got we've to be part of the solution. And uh, yeah, we want to build, we want to assemble electric vehicles, don't we, in this country? Well, it's kind of hard to do that if you don't have the materials available for the batteries or if you're importing them. Yeah. That's great, but that gets to my point about why we're 21st out of 21 countries. We're not actually creating the growth in our own economy. We're just yeah. importing materials and maybe being a final assembler for a, a sliver of the electric vehicle production of the world. That's not going to be good enough. Absolutely. We need the wealth in order to become carbon neutral and to create exactly innovative technologies that is going to save our planet. And it is frustrating to see because it's just going towards other countries instead of ours. And, um, but there's so much potential for our country as well. I mean, you're, you're in Vancouver, just go back on this affordability. Uh, yeah. You know, the average, average price uh, in Vancouver now for a house is 1.3 million, I believe, uh, you know, yeah. and uh, th th this is, this is something that's being talked about now. How, how is it possible for young people to afford a house, uh, you know, which has always been part of the middle class aspiration of being in Canada, not yeah. renting all your life, uh, but eventually owning. I'm told uh, that uh, in the city of Vancouver, a lot of that those costs associated with that $1.3 million is uh, all the bureaucratic costs and the development charges and the, you know this charge and that charge amounting to uh, you know $660,000 of that $1.3 million cost. So yeah. unless we get that under control, uh, we're not going to be able to uh, have affordable housing for our young people. That's a that's a big crisis in this country as well. Yeah, and it's just how do you stop it when there's so much pressure from international money coming in? Um, obviously, I've seen that they've stopped foreign buyers for the next two years, but I've also heard that there's a ton of loopholes as well to get through that. Yeah, there is. It's just, I think the only thing that really you is going to you got to yeah, yeah, I mean, demand is one thing, but it's also supply, right? you gotta, yeah. you got to increase the incentives for supply. Otherwise, that's uh, right you're all chasing too few houses. Yeah. And well, and, and so speaking of uh, supply, not necessarily in the housing market, but just going back to reshore, uh, reshore in Canada mm -hmm. and the supply chain problem, what's the solution? Obviously there's a crisis going on. Everybody's aware of that. Uh, but what, what kind of solutions is your organization focused on? We're, we're going to be, uh, we're doing a series of solution tables with uh, logistics experts and supply chain experts over the next few months. And we're, we're going to be, uh, suggesting some solutions. So we're not quite at, we just started about a year ago, so we're not quite okay. at that stage. Uh, we've been identifying the issues, but uh, 
And we're not an organization. I want to make this clear. We're, it's not like build everything in Canada 100%. That, that's impossible. We, we are still a trading nation. We have to trade with the world. But, you know, I guess our point is it used to be seen as job security, right? You, you, you have local manufacturing and local production of goods and services, and that creates job security for your population. That's still true. Uh, but we learned over the pandemic, health security is an issue. Where's our PPE supply coming from? Is it 98% from elsewhere? That might not work for our own health security or vaccine production and distribution, same deal. Then there's national security. You know, how do you make sure semiconductor chips? Uh, you know, uh, how do you make sure we have some local supply of semiconductor chips in, in North America even, not just in Asia, uh, so that uh, we can assemble cars and uh, assemble, uh, uh, you know, uh, solar panels, etc. cetera. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, I think the new one on the, on the horizon, so you got national security, health security, job security. The next one coming up is food security. Uh, we, you know, with the Russia-Ukraine conflict and yeah. uh, Russia, Russia destroying supply chains left, right, and center, and them themselves becoming a pariah state. Uh, how do we have enough local production of food that we're not disrupted by all of these disruptions in the supply chain? So, uh, so I think reshoring Canada's point of view is: look, we're an information and advocacy organization. We, we have identified some problems. We are going to come up with some potential solutions after, after having these uh, solutions tables. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not as simple as saying everything should be manufactured or produced in Canada. We get that, sure. but it's got to be better than what we've got going on right now. Uh, we, are, we are in a grave uh, position of being prone to the disruptions in the supply chain, which are not going to go away. They, they are here to stay. I, I, initially, with the COVID, people saying, yeah, supply chain being disrupted right now, but it, uh, you know, a year after the pandemic, uh, it'll be better again. Well, guess what? Uh, mm. It ain't working out that way. There's always another reason for a disruption. Uh, you know, uh, China shut down Shanghai, city of 26 million people with thousands of container ships waiting yeah. to dock at their port. Uh, and Russia, Ukraine, of course, uh, really throwing another monkey wrench into global supply chain. So th it seems like we're having disruption after disruption. So, yeah, that so that kind of addresses my next question was, where do you see this going in the next 12 months? But I guess a, a question instead is, how do you think this problem is going to affect the markets over the next 12 months? Yeah, I mean, the markets are, are resilient, uh, you know, to an extent, and uh, they have been a better place, I guess, along with real estate to uh, shelter money than, than other places. Uh, but uh, I think from my, from my perspective, uh, you know, what I care about is the, the, the VC market in, in Canada and how are we going to nurture uh, startups that have some, some fantastic solutions. We've got some great thinkers in this country. So that's kind of what I'm focused on right now rather than the market generally. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've got some great companies that I'm involved with that are uh, really interesting and you know, great ideas. And uh, I'm also involved in an organization to mentor newcomers to the country who have great ideas. I think oh, that's, that's cool. really important too. Yeah, yeah. Where can, and, where, uh, where can know, people find you for that, Tony? 
If yeah, it's a, yeah, I'm involved. I'm sharing a mentorship program called Beehive, B-H-I-V-E, which okay. is in the city of Brampton, just outside of Toronto, yeah. uh, beehive.ca. And uh, the, the, the idea there is that it's a startup visa program. So these are newcomers who have started up their own company but want to move to Brampton or, or Toronto in our case. And uh, so we'll, we'll give them an office, we'll give them a desk, we'll give them a phone. Uh, and uh, if they are creating jobs in our, in our country as a result of their startup, then they have a, a direct path to a uh, permanent residency, right? So it's Great. just a wonderful way to get, uh, get some new talent here with some really amazing ideas. And so I'm, I'm creating a whole web of mentors, business mentors for them, so that uh, when they have a marketing plan or have a business plan, they all have some local successful mentors who will be able to walk them through that. Very cool. It's an incubator accelerator type style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay. But it's directed to newcomers. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And I bet there's probably lots of government support for those uh, entrepreneurs as well. I'm, I'm a guessing. Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, our our big thing that we're waiting for the federal government on is uh, approve the startup visas because they're all so backed up with COVID. Uh, you know, and people not being in the office, et cetera. Uh, it's been really tough to get the, get these startup visas approved, but I'm hoping that that logjam will be out of the way soon because right. once we get them here, then we can start mentoring them. So they're, they're all waiting patiently, uh, you know, overseas somewhere, whether it's uh, Taiwan or New Delhi or, or Lagos, wherever they are. They're waiting for us to get our act together. Uh, you know, once again, it's a little bit frustrating, but uh, I'm hoping for yeah. better days. So do you think COVID has permanently changed politics? You mentioned COVID backing up a lot of these visas and things like that. How else has COVID just permanently changed Canadian politics? Well, I mean, everybody's talking about the toxicity in Canadian politics, which is not, yeah. it's not just Canada. We, we're seeing that in other countries as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've seen, uh, you know, clashes because uh, uh, people who are uh, who are willing to trust governments and public health officials versus those who don't. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, compliance has become more of a problem, although Canada, you know, we had a, we, we have close to a 90 percent va vaccination rate. Uh, which is excellent compared to other parts of the world, uh, not everywhere, but most places. But uh, I think it is uh, creating a new era. And um, I, I think that uh, somebody was joking, you know, uh, we have all the we have these all these movies, right? You know, where there's an alien invasion or, you know, or uh, Bruce Willis and Armageddon There's a massive <laughs> asteroid coming. The world bands together. Right. And yeah. uh, they, they yeah. solve the problem. Well, do you actually think that the world is going to band together or would there be alien deniers? Uh, yeah. No, no, those aren't real aliens. That's actually yeah. Bill Gates, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, I got to say the latter <laughs> seems more likely than the former, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's very, it's a very uh, tough time. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're struggling as humanity to come up with some basic principles. Now, part of what's been going on in our part of the world is we have been deliberately undermined by uh, China and Russia, uh, who are undermining our democracy as we speak uh, to, uh, to make us weaker. 
how, how well like, I, you know cyber uh, va- vaccine va- vaccine hesitancy uh, is a great good case in point a lot of the uh, original stories about uh, the uh, the effects of the vaccine uh, on human health were were just misinformation stories from Russia so really you know, they they didn't yeah for sure same with China so uh, so this is this is all part of how they get us arguing with one another rather than dealing with the threats yeah. that Russia and China represent. So this has all been validated, by the way. You don't have to take my word for it. And uh, uh, I know that uh, some people are, you know, they some people have legit questions about vaccine and, and their health impacts. Those are on the other side of the coin. Those are legitimate debates to have. And I don't like sure. people who shut down debate just because they disagree with them and say, sure. you, you're not allowed to say that because you're saying that vaccines don't work and what you're saying is harmful. So you're not allowed to speak. You're deplatformed. Uh, I don't like that either. Uh, but yeah. I think we should also be uh, we should also be cognizant that sometimes we're being manipulated and the information we're seeing is, is being manipulated by malevolent forces. So well, that's the world we're in. So that that very statement that I just said, you're going to get a bunch of people that are going to disagree with what I'm saying about China sure. and Russia. And then there'll be yet another bunch of people that will disagree yeah. when I say that uh, that people have a right to dissent on these issues. So. Uh, yeah, that's the world we're in. Well, I mean, that's that's definitely one thing I wanted to touch on as well, because you are you're very much involved with the media. And, and one of my questions, too. So, you know, obviously, so, you know, there's some involvement with Russia and China. But what about our own mainstream media as well? You know, you watch clips from both CNN or Fox News and you can see how they manipulate certain uh, clips and they're Totally or or CBC and CTV, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's not right? just yeah, yeah. In in ca- so, Canadian context, it's the mainstream media here. Yeah, and very disappointing. And uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of data indicating that Canadians' trust of mainstream media sources yeah. is going through the floor. Uh, people don't trust them, and uh, that makes people susceptible to misinformation as well. When they because uh, not because they should trust the mainstream media, be, because uh, they aren't worthy of trust anymore, and so uh, right. people go on to down these rabbit holes, uh, yeah. and uh, that's not helpful either. So, uh, for, from my perspective, uh, look, it's the genie's out of the bottle. Uh, mainstream media is less and less relevant, uh, and we do have to we do have to allow for the fact that uh, there's going to be a multiplicity of media sources. Uh, you know, uh, people can look at the downside of that and. Breitbart or whatever, but hey, look at you and me. We're on a podcast yeah. right now. I have yeah. my own podcast. You know, there's yeah. a there's over a million regular podcasts uh, yeah. that are publishing content, and uh, that's a great opportunity. That's a great sign. Uh, a lot of those podcasts are one hour, two hours, three hours long, yeah. and uh, so all of this talk, these doomsayers who said, "Oh well, millennials," you know. They have six-second attention spans, and yeah. uh, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't uh, absorb news anymore. That's all wrong. It's all, you know, BS, yeah. right? So, yeah. guess what? People love two-hour podcasts and three-hour podcasts. Right. Yeah, some of it's entertainment, as it should be, but a lot of it is news, uh, information, opinion, yeah. differing views. Yeah, what's wrong with that? I think that's a very positive trend. No, I, I agree. And that's why this is like podcasts like this are so important. But how did 
How did we get to where we are with the mainstream media and with infiltration from other governments, our own government, um, and then also uh, large corporations as well? Um, Yeah. How how did we get to this point? Well, it's this little thing called the Internet. You may have heard of it, (laughs) Uh, you know, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, alternative sources of information uh, and it's hard to hard to compete with free. Yeah. Right. So free sources of information in the Internet degraded the ability of the traditional media sources, newspapers, magazines, radio, television to uh, to survive because their advertising revenue dried up uh, as advertisers went to new media to advertise or just simply did their own advertising, bought a Facebook ad or whatever they did, right? Yeah. So so all of a sudden, there's no way to finance these traditional media. So they start laying off, laying off, laying off, laying off reporters. Uh, you know, uh, they, don't have the, they don't have the capacity to keep uh, bureaus open, foreign news, yeah. news bureaus shut down, left, right, and center. Your, the newspaper, the mainstream media is left, the legacy media, I guess they call them, are left regurgitating, you know, cheapened news articles that have really no content or have been, you know, uh, created by somebody that they, they, they can't even verify. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the one saving grace they had in the U.S. for four years was Donald S. Trump because he was just like a media, like people love reading about Crazy. and watching about Donald Trump because they hated him so much or they loved yeah. him so much. Uh, and so New York Times, you know, was uh, it was a bonanza for the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and Fox. And yeah, yeah. he's gone now. Uh, I mean, he's <laughs> still there, but he's no longer president. So uh, their their ratings have dropped uh, correspondingly. Uh, so I don't think they have a new they don't have a way to survive. So what do they do in right. Canada? Well, they get they get bailed out by government and all right. of a sudden. The, the very people that they're supposed to keep an eye on are the people yeah. handing out the dollars so they can survive. It's not a, not a good situation. Uh, and therefore, it drives people away to other alternative sources of media. It becomes yeah. a vicious circle. But I think in the in the end, I think it should work out because it it just drives these independent platforms. And that's what people, like you said, want to listen to. So um, it, is that one of the main reasons why you started your podcast? Why did you start yours and, and what's the vision of your podcast? Yeah, I mean, I was doing a podcast as an MP for on behalf of the uh, Conservative Party uh, and I was the host for that. So I had sort of dipped my toes in it, but it was a kind of a very sort of rigid form of podcasting. Uh, I, I, I really couldn't be myself. So when I exited Parliament, a friend of mine uh, that had uh, that I've kept close to, he'd been a former candidate of ours from Belleville, Ontario, said, "Hey, let's do a podcast." Uh, you know, he had the technical expertise; I had the Rolodex. Uh, for your younger listeners, a Rolodex is a term for <laughs> my contact list. Yeah. Uh, so I had a, I had my contacts, and he had the technical expertise to actually produce a relatively sophisticated podcast not the most sophisticated, but sophisticated enough. And so we just, uh, we started it and uh, I, I found I liked it. The other thing that I did, Tyler, was I monetized it. We actually get paid by paying sponsors each podcast. So that, yeah. that to me is very validating when people are willing to pay for my podcast being broadcast. And um, 
So we're up to 129 episodes, I think now. Oh, great. Uh, And uh, yeah, so I I think my only advice to podcasters is keep doing it. Keep doing it regularly on schedule. Uh, And, uh, you know, you can't just do three podcasts and then wait a month and do another podcast. Uh, It's it's a lot better if you uh, even not regardless of the quality. I mean, quality is important, but it's just important to be consistent is what I'm trying to say. And uh, that's what we've been able to do. And uh, it's pretty exciting stuff. I, I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's fun just having these interesting conversations with interesting people. So, um, yeah. And what we do, it's not all politics for us. A lot, a chunk of it is politics, but I've interviewed, we've interviewed musicians. Uh, Kim Mitchell's come on our, our show. Uh, Victoria Banks, who's a Nashville country songwriter from, from Canada. Um, mm-hmm. Kelly Ogden from a, a pop punk band called the Dolly Rots uh, okay. from Florida. Uh, so, you know, I, I've had some musicians, we've had some pro wrestlers, we've had some sports people. Uh, we had a former Olympian on, uh, uh, Megan Oldham, who's uh, close by to me in Perry Sound. She was uh, at the Beijing Olympics as a, as a skier. So, yeah, you know, interesting. It, it's just inter- interesting stuff, not just it's eclectic. Uh, yeah. It's not just uh, your standard politicians, your standard media folks. And uh, I enjoy doing that. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels in all of these things, like we were talking about between politics and entrepreneurs, but also athletes as well. So there's similar uh, wisdom to gain from all these people. If you had some advice to give to an entrepreneur looking to get into the supply chain space, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, the supply chain space, uh, it's a pretty technical area. Uh, I think there's a real opportunity for data there's a, a need for a lot more data. And so a bunch of us are rushing around, sometimes competing with one another, trying to create platforms that will give uh, um, manufacturers, miners, uh, food processors, the data they need. You know, if I import from China, what are the real costs of doing that? What are the, not only the labor costs, the environmental costs, the uh, social exclusion costs, uh, versus closer to home, near shoring, mm. closer to home, those kinds of things. I think we're all trying to figure out how to get that data out there in a meaningful way. And so there's an opportunity there, I think. Uh, right. And, um, you know, uh, just the logistics are going to be a lot more complicated. It used to be just in time delivery from anywhere in the world. Now uh, you've got to have redundancy and resiliency in your supply chain. Uh, otherwise, you're going to run into major disruption, which could right. you know destroy your business. So all of these things are going to need some more people uh, to uh, to s- sort of spend time and energy uh, getting that going. Uh, and uh, so there, I think there's some going to be some opportunities there for sure, Tyler. Interesting. And and so you, you mentioned earlier that you're working on other companies as well. Are these primarily in the supply chain space, or can you speak to these no. companies a little bit? Tell me about it. Yeah, one of them is kind of not supply chain-y, but, but kind of e-procurement. Uh, it's, it's a platform called DG Market, and it's a, it uh, has many thousands of users already. Uh, so if you want to bid on a government project anywhere in the world, Nigeria, Kenya, Canada, uh, Brazil, uh, then it provides a platform to find out what, what is going up for, for procurement. So that's one hmm. company, uh, and uh, you know it's uh, actually a spinoff of the World Bank. Uh, hmm. Another company, a Canadian company called Magnify, 
Uh, it's kind of like an office suite offering uh, online e-business e office suite uh, that, uh, you know, uh, kind of got crushed by Zoom for a little while, but I, it's, it's finding its place uh, as, a, as a great, a much better tool for your online office work where colleagues can jump in and jump out of the, of the room that's online and, and uh, collaborate. Uh, so it's not just Zoom call after Zoom call. So th those are a couple of the companies I'm involved in. I'm also involved in a psilocybin company oh. uh, called Red Light Holland. Uh, okay. Psilocybin could be the next frontier. Uh, Microdosing of psilocybin uh, could be found to be reducing, uh, and I'm making no market to, uh, making no market <laughs> assertions here, but could be found to re be reducing a suicidal ideation, PTSD, yeah. anxiety, depression, uh, yeah. and so I'm I'm involved on that front as well. The psilocybin one's interesting, and especially talking to somebody in government right now because I've I've had this feeling for a long time. Um, just that, you know, microdosing mushrooms. I've heard a lot of people who have had good experiences. I've had good experiences microdosing yep. mushrooms as well. And, um, but it's interesting because this is something that hasn't been ever legal, but so morality and legality, you know, these are, these can sometimes be a little bit different things. And, and when it, you know, often they are go hand in hand, but, um, you know, when it came to psilocybin microdosing, this is something that I've kind of always thought is strange how it can have such profound effects, but we're not open right. to learning about it. You know, and I think that has been the case. I don't think it's the case now. And right. uh, look, uh, you know, and my views have migrated since I was in government. I'll, I'll admit to that. And people should be celebrating when views are, are migrated no rather than saying, oh, you're, you're inconsistent with what you said in 2006. Yeah, I'm a different person <laughs> than I was in 2006, number one. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I think the thing is mental wellness. And I'm a, uh, I've become uh, really tuned into how important mental wellness is because my, my mental wellness suffered uh, when I was uh, in parliament. Uh, and, uh, and so I want people to have the tools available. And I don't care where they came from or how people viewed them in 1957. That's irrelevant. If you've got evidence that it can be applied safely uh, in micro dosing and it has uh, some intended effects that reduce anxiety, depression, PTSD, whatever, why shouldn't we look at that? Why, why should we just automatically assume that that's not part of yeah. a solution for individuals? Not, not the case for everybody, but for yeah. certain individuals, it might be. Uh, and yeah. so, uh, yeah, I think that that should be looked at. Why not? No, for, for sure. For sure. And it's interesting. So you just said you had some low points in parliament. I always like to ask people about some low points and high points. Maybe since you just mentioned a low point, let's start with a low point and we'll end with a high point. Yeah, you know, and I've had my victories uh, in politics, 25 years of elected politics, but I've had my defeats as well, both uh, both uh, political defeats and also personal defeats. And it, it, it takes a toll on any human being. The advent of social media also uh, makes it a lot tougher to be a politician because you're constantly under attack uh, and uh, un not only scrutiny, but, but attack. And uh, people yeah. think of nothing to drag you down, drag your family down. Uh, it's all part of the game, right? So that's the low point. The high, part, high points are doing something for your country, uh, having some successes, uh, you know, I helped save the auto sector or I helped uh, balance the budget or I helped uh, create uh, the first national pandemic plan in 2007. 
So there's there's some firsts that I did that I'm quite proud of, and I'm also proud of the colleagues that I met and uh, on all sides of the house. Uh, you know, uh, there's mm. it, it was great to be you know at the cabinet table with Stephen Harper for ten years. And uh, although I can't give any details of what happened at the cabinet <laughs> meetings, I can tell you uh, it was pretty heady heady stuff, like dealing with war and peace and uh, the future of the economy and the future of society. Uh, uh, individual mm. rights, collective rights, uh, Aboriginal rights, uh, immigrant rights, all of these things are part and parcel of what you deal with day in, day out as a cabinet member. And uh, that is, that's not, nothing beats that as far as I'm concerned. No, no kidding. At the end of the day, purpose, it just, what you're speaking to me sounds like it's just a very purpose-driven mission. And, and, and uh, Tyler, we all, we all need things. We all need yeah. things that are bigger than ourselves. It's That's not right. just about ourselves, not just about our own ego. Uh, yeah. It is it is bigger than ourselves. It, it is it means the world, society, the, the cosmos, whatever, however you define it. Uh, we all I, I believe that human DNA has that in us that we need that to have to find meaning. And so yeah. uh, if we can even do that for part of our lives, that's that's a big plus. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And so this has been a really good time, Tony, really appreciate having you on the podcast. Sure. If, uh, if any listeners out there, they want to follow you, they want to uh, see what you're up to, where can they go to see what Tony Clement is up sure. to? Sure. You can find me at, at Tony Clement CPC on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and, uh, the podcast is, and another thing, podcast.ca or, and another, and another thing podcast, wherever you download your podcast. I also have a television show called uh, boom and bust, which is on a, a startup a news network called the news forum. It's, uh, uh, bell five Oh six Rogers one Oh seven tell us eight four two. Uh, and, uh, yeah, just, or just uh, visit Tony You'll, you'll find it all there. Awesome. And I want to thank everybody who tuned in to listen today. Please like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Right on.